Stork Talks. Welcome to Stork Talks with Zoe and Tom. The storks have been part of life in The Hague for centuries. Have you spotted one yet? Each week, Stork Talks delves into a range of stories, news and anecdotes. And for the next hour, we'll take you under our wing as we discover the city of peace and justice. This is truly a special place to live and we invite you to tune in this and discover it with us each Thursday between 8 and 9 p.m. on 92.0 Den Haag FM. Last week we spoke with Annerie Decker of the Levis Clinic or the End of Life Clinic in English. And we heard more about what is involved in the process of requesting euthanasia here in the Netherlands. And Annerie told us that from the perspective of the clinic there's no need to extend euthanasia laws. And Zoe, uh, we spoke about the demand for euthanasia and how it might increase now that we see more people living for longer but are unwilling to suffer through the final years. And if we're speaking about longevity, then I think Brexit is a long-standing issue that seems unending. Fortunately for me, you've been following the Brexit saga for a while. So who did you speak with this week? Yes, Tom, uh, Brexit is indeed ongoing uh, and still no deal. And yet the 31st of December deadline looms ever closer. But on a more positive note, I spoke this week with Lawrence Koch. He is head of foreign direct investment at the Hague Business Agency. And I began by asking Lawrence about Brexit from the Dutch business perspective. For uh, for having me, uh, Zoe, on, on this show. And um, yeah, definitely Brexit is something that um, is on our mind, has been on our mind for uh, since the referendum even. And uh, with the uh, transition period ending, it's uh, it's becoming more relevant for us uh, day by day. Uh, well, how has The Hague been preparing for Brexit in terms of business opportunities? Well, first of all, we take into account that we have uh, loads of UK citizens uh, working in our city. The Brits are, are everywhere. So they work in the, in the, in the international organizations uh, in the city, mm-hmm. as well as companies from other origins. So uh, they obviously uh, have issues uh, and, and questions. So uh, with the international center uh, in the city hall, we try to uh, to inform them actively uh, about uh, the consequences for their, their status uh, of living and working uh, in the Netherlands. That's been resolved for a fi- uh, to, a, to a certain extent. So, so we do see that uh, companies international companies, uh, British companies now located uh, on the other side of the North Sea uh, are considering consolidate their uh, activities um, in uh, continental Europe and uh, might even uh, pick up their uh, best stuff and uh, move over here. So that's what that's where we're here for. We try to advise them uh, about uh, what it takes and uh, uh, yeah, and also attract them uh, to our beautiful city. So we spoke previously and we agreed that The Hague clearly the sort of the niche market for The Hague in particular is obviously NGOs, various non-governmental organizations, and also impact startups. I mean, these are the two areas in which The Hague has um, differentiates itself amongst other um, cities in the Netherlands. How could The Hague help these particular types of businesses if they were considering a move or just opening an office in the city of peace and justice. This is definitely a profile uh, which is becoming more important. Uh, we have been uh, the city of peace and justice for many, uh, many decades already. And even uh, dating hundreds of years back, people were busy with making the world a little bit better from uh, from The Hague. Uh, more and more, there's, there's a business extent to this uh, to this profile. We are succeeding to uh, you know, to uh, utilize this profile uh, in creating fertile ground for, for NGOs and startups 
to work internationally from our city to make the world a better place. And definitely this is something that uh, relates to Brexit as well, as we see that uh, the NGO philanthropic social enterprise sector in the UK is also well developed. We have been working closely uh, with, uh, for instance, EU uh, funding organizations. They're not longer part of EU uh, after January 1st. So um, to be able to uh, get a hold of these funds and connect to these networks, they must be in, in the uh, European Union. So yeah. The Hague uh, is, is a great uh, place to offer them an, um, an alternative. So that's, that's why we focus on, on it. Mm-hmm. And uh, what we can offer is, uh, yeah, apart from the assistance we, uh, we have with the team uh, in place at the, the Hague Business Agency, we have great networks. Uh, there's uh, more and more impact investors coming to the city. We uh, recently celebrated during uh, Impact Fest uh, the establishment of, uh, of uh, a branch in the Hague of the DRK Foundation from Silicon Valley. There's uh, the Euclid Network, uh, one of the largest impact and networks where all kinds of social enterprises internationally are connected to. Yeah, the, the city picked up also with more on uh, facilitating uh, uh, of this all, uh, with creating specialized hubs where uh, these companies could locate, uh, find one another and uh, do co-creation. Uh, there's the Humanity Hub in the city center and at the Binkhorst area, there's Apollo 14. So uh, also physically, there are uh, many places popping up, uh, yes. which makes it a really, really good place to uh, extend your business after the Brexit transition period. Absolutely. Now, for those of us who may be not quite so au fait uh, with all the business terminology, the impact economy is based on the notion that you can do business and at the same time you can do good. So it's sort of um, businesses with a, with a social goal, but they also are profit-making. And of course, I think looking forward, that fits in very nicely with, with many of the non-governmental organizations, because I believe, and maybe you can clarify this for our listeners, uh, Lawrence, there is a sort of a trend, more NGOs moving towards a kind of an impact identity or, or trying to find ways perhaps to self-fund or to at least generate some funds. So, so the two are actually connected. Yeah, they definitely are. Yeah, you see that the uh, NGOs... Uh, uh, in a more uh, traditional uh, matter, also seek innovation to uh, uh, conduct their activities uh, internationally. And there you end up young, talented entrepreneurs that, that are developing these solutions. So there's definitely a connection there with also with the international government, uh, governmental organizations in the city, like the um, OPCW, ICC they, and others. They are also keen to, to work on more innovative ways of yeah, connecting with the goals that they are uh, striving for. So a uh, young and fertile, um, innovative startup community comes in play. So we, we, we see that, that they can be the place to make those. Fascinating. So sort of top-down and bottom-up approach. Uh, that, that, that sounds Definitely, good. definitely. Yeah. Okay. So perhaps you've, you've mentioned some of the bigger, the bigger organizations with which we're all familiar, but can you give us any specific examples of organizations which have decided to make the move to The Hague as a result um, of Brexit? We've seen uh, Halo Trust, the Environmental Inve- Investigation Agency come over, and um, uh, there's also Mercy Corp and, and, and Redress NGOs that came uh, yes. already a year or two years ago. So there's definitely an increase there. Yeah, we are expecting uh, a, a larger influx uh, when the data uh, becomes comes closer or even fast. Right. Uh, okay. If I understood correctly from our conver- previous conversation, you were saying that many of these organizations are not necessarily leaving the UK, but they're offering, often deciding just to open an additional office in, in say, the Netherlands and in, in The Hague. Is that right? Yeah, for, for NGOs or, or startups, 
could be the uh, the situation, but when we look at the, the more commercial side of businesses, then maybe IT companies or energy companies, uh, yeah, the UK market remains a big market for them. So uh, they will definitely keep their position there and um, maybe have a second second operation uh, on continental Europe, hopefully uh, from The Hague. So that's interesting to hear what's going on in The Hague. And if we just zoom out a little bit and think about uh, Brexit on a broader level, because of course we are all watching negotiations. They seem to be continuing at snail's pace. In your opinion, as a, obviously as a, as a business person, what do you think would be the best case scenario uh, at this stage? In the long term, I hope that um, for trade relations, there can be a, an agreement where uh, both countries could benefit from one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we have to, uh, to admit that the uh, UK being one of the largest trade partners of our uh, Dutch economy, we will suffer if uh, not the right trade deals will be made. Uh, so that accounts then for the, both the Dutch originated uh, businesses as well as the international businesses that, uh, that are Dutch, are becoming Dutch when they come here. So in the end, it's, it's best to, um, to have an agreement in that sense. And, uh, but for the short term, yeah, some, uh, some sectors, some cities could benefit from uh, providing an alternative for, uh, for companies and, uh, and businesses uh, and organizations that now are located in the UK to, uh, to be able to still operate in uh, continental Europe. Yeah, I mean, if you look at some headlines sort of towards the end of last year, there's things like Amsterdam, the new London. Obviously, these are, these are headlines. Uh, they're, they're designed to, to attract attention. But uh, what do you think about the notion that perhaps increased business opportunities for Brexit might help offset the effects of the pandemic? Or is that a bit ambitious? Uh, yeah, it depends on, on which sector. As, a, as an um, economic development agency, uh, together with uh, national and local policymakers, yeah, we are looking into every opportunity to overcome the COVID uh, economic downturn. So Brexit is definitely one of uh, one of them. But uh, yeah, on the, again, you know, on the long run, we need to um, uh, work together with our close neighbors uh, to make uh, Europe a more prosperous space. Being being it as as joint parties in the EU or or uh, outside of the EU, they, they remain uh, a very close and uh, good trade partner. So that that should be definitely be uh, cherished. I must I must say. Yeah, that's that's the most important thing. I'm I'm definitely, definitely. With you there, Lawrence. I yeah. mean, myself. I hope to to see the the UK return to the EU fold sometime in the next five to ten years. I mean, what do you think about that? Just just before we finish, what are your feelings on that? Yeah, for now, I can't imagine that that will happen. Uh, also, with the recent developments in Scotland, where probably a new um, referendum will take place. Well, I think that will be hard. But yeah, maybe the new um, uh, US administration could also help in uh, normalizing the uh, relationships uh, also uh, across Atlantic. Absolutely. Yeah, in general, it's a very... Um, so, yeah, we have to see how this, uh, how this works. And uh, wait, yeah, we are there to add that. Okay. Definitely, well, definitely. We, we live in hope. We live in hope. Um, I do. Lawrence Cock of the Hague Business Agency, Head of Foreign Investments there. Thank you so much for joining us today on Stalk Talks. Thank you for having me. I think it's interesting. And for me, what stands out is really the fact how he speaks about the impact economy and, and the Brexit and how some companies might be transferring to the Netherlands and how perhaps the Hague can become sort of this, this impact hub. I agree with you. I think for the Hague, um, for the impact economy and for its NGO sector, uh, I think it could be quite positive because I think the Netherlands is a natural place for a lot of um, like British NGOs to 
at least to have an extra office. They may not decide to move there entirely. But as Lawrence said, there's also it, there's some interesting links to EU funding. And if you want to benefit from EU funding, and, and we know there's quite a lot of it for NGOs and these kinds of impact um, startups, if you want to benefit from that, you do need to obviously be in the EU. So I think there will be some incentive there for, for these British startups and these kinds of things to at least have an office and hopefully that will be in the Hague so that will be something positive that might come out of Brexit well, positive for us unfortunately <laughs> well, but yes Stork Talks. now Zoe like every week I also like to bring you something special and uh, this week that means specialty coffee I uh, had the pleasure of exploring specialty coffee with uh, Zishan Malik. He opened a coffee bar here in The Hague, despite, or perhaps because of his background in law, um, because we all know as lawyers do tend to drink a decent amount of coffee. Yes, I mean, I was intrigued how he made that transition from from law to to coffee, to being a barista. (laughs) Yeah, no, it it definitely is a fascinating story, and I'm sure there's, there's much more to tell, but one of the topics that I that I loved and that we're going to listen to in a second was, of course, uh, his story and all the different steps that are that that come into play when we speak about specialty coffee. And to explore that that story, perhaps it's best to just give the word to Zishan, um, who answered among one of the questions: What is coffee? Coffee is predominantly a specialty coffee bar um, that has evolved into a specialty coffee and brunch bar over the three years of its existence. But yeah, specialty coffee—that's what we do. And and what makes coffee special, not, not just to you, but in general? I think it's our obsession for quality. We Whatever it is we do, um, whether it be food or coffee or tea or, or, or drinks or cakes, it's it's the pursuit of perfection and the pursuit of a flavor experience that we're trying to deliver to our customers. Where did this obsession for coffee start with for you? Oof. <laughs> um, well... The, the the long version of the story, I would say around age five, when my mother allowed me to have my first cappuccino out of a vending machine, no less, um, uh, because I was always kind of taken by, I mean, I suppose a lot of kids are, right? That, that, that one drink that your mom and dad seem to always be drinking that you're never allowed near, but smells so good. So I suppose my, my relationship with coffee in earnest started back then, but really the shape that it's in right now, uh, when I was in law school in London, back in about 2005, 2006, when, uh, when the specialty coffee scene was really starting to kind of boom in in the main hotspots of the world like London yeah so that first cup of coffee was from a vending machine I I can't judge how the quality was but I mean how how was that first cup of coffee what what was it for you that, that you remember so distinctly about it intoxicating obviously you tend to romanticize a lot of your childhood experiences so i i imagine that if i were to have that exact cup of coffee now i'd react very differently to it but no i i still remember very very fondly my first sip out of that that uh cup uh and it was wonderful very hard to describe i guess but isn't that really kind of the beauty of coffee right it's it's very vague and personal to us all every every person has his own relationship with uh with coffee so you've continued on this exploration of coffee and eventually ended up here at, at Cafe in this well, specialty coffees. What are some of the highlights, if you think back to the older cups of coffee that you've served and the ones that you've helped prepare for people to serve at home as well? Um, so I suppose most of those highlights come from actually running Cafe itself, because prior to that, my experience serving people was fairly minimal. I, I trained a lot as a specialty coffee barista in the years prior to coffee, but as a lawyer, there was hardly any time to, to serve customers 
the beauty of coffee is that every every week is its own adventure. Um, specialty coffee, you know, it's not tied down to any one particular type of flavor or any one particular type of region. You're dealing with a high-quality product that can be farmed in so many different parts of the world as long as you have passionate farmers who are kind of taking care of the quality of the cherry, um, giving you the very best that they've harvested. Um, and you are working with a roaster who knows how to treat that product right. You are going to inevitably have a great experience. And um, yeah, I mean, we've we've had customers who say that their whole perception of, of coffee and their whole ritual surrounding coffee has changed entirely ever since they started drinking specialty coffee. It stops being a, a functional drink that you kind of consume to keep yourself caffeinated and uh, and, and vitalized and, and more really just about enjoying yourself. So what makes specialty coffee special? That's an interesting and loaded question. I'm going to be as concise as I can. Um, so coffee comes from a fruit. It therefore follows that it must share characteristics with fruit. So the beans that you see in your bag are, are in fact, the seeds of uh, a coffee cherry. Fruit grows all around the world. And just like any fruit, it uh, has distinct flavors based on where it's from, what altitude it's grown at, what kind of climate it's grown in, how the people who are cultivating it and harvesting it treat it. Uh, in coffee, it gets a little more complicated because that, that seed has to be pulped out of the cherry. There are hundreds of ways of doing that, and those ways also further determine what kind of flavors the coffee will end up having. Sometimes there can be heavy amounts of fermentation occurring in it, which causes some really nice fruity, complex flavors to, to come through. Sometimes it just naturally dries in the sun, which means that it's packed with lots of sugar that never got to ferment and create acid. Um, so there's, you know, it's... Um, that's the beauty, uh, I think, of, of specialty coffee, is that we are talking about fruit grown in different parts of the world with lots of care, harvested with lots of care, roasted with lots of care. And that's the second part of the chain that's so important. It, it needs to be done right. It's a whole science. You have you know, 10 to 12 minutes to roast an entire batch of coffee, and uh, little moves that you make throughout that can make the difference between great coffee and really bad coffee. And then lastly, the, the buck stops at us, the baristas. We essentially have have to then take this coffee, grind it. Um, we're talking about grinding it at levels where you don't even have the language to describe how fine or how coarse it is here in a cafe setting. Only in a lab would you be able to talk about that properly. So we have the jobs of, of doing that consistently, getting that grind size right, um, extracting it at the right temperature, making sure that we, uh, in the in the 30 seconds to three minutes, depending on what kind of brewing we're doing, really making the most of that hard work that the farmer and uh, subsequently the roaster have put in. Um, and so it's our job to interpret all that work and, and serve it in a cup to a customer uh, and for them to then be able to experience what hopefully we are promising that we want them to experience. And that can be anything from, oh, this coffee tastes like chocolate and strawberries to this coffee is going to remind you of biting into uh, a, a big ball of marzipan. It, it's, it really depends on what you're dealing with. Um, and that's, that's the pursuit of, uh, of the perfection that, that I was talking about. It's, it's a constant journey. Every day is an adventure. I think the beauty in how you describe it as well is there's all these different elements that need to come together to form this perfect cup of coffee, if there if there even is such a thing as the perfect cup of coffee. And I'm curious because you, you've trained people uh, and, and as, of course, you, you've made and you've seen made hundreds of cups of coffee, I presume, some amazing with full respect to the farmers and the process and the roasting and some i yeah i can only assume weren't up the standards so what are some of the essentials that people need to know if they're making a, a good cup of coffee 
Well, the first thing that I always tell uh, either new baristas that I'm training or customers who are really getting into specialty coffee, there is no perfect cup to really kind of shake out of your system because it allows you to truly be able to enjoy all the diversity that you get to uh, enjoy in our industry. Every cup needs to be kind of judged for what it is. I think that a good cup of coffee, first and foremost, should just make you happy. If there's something about it that's unpleasant, if there's something about it that's not working for you, then then that's the problem. Um, and, and maybe it's it's to do with the brewing, maybe it's to do with the, the coffee itself. So I think it's, it's, it's really just uh, the pursuit of the best version of the coffee that you're drinking, rather than like the perfect cup of coffee. Things to watch out for. I think with specialty coffee, the, the, the most important thing is traceability. You need to know exactly, or you need to be able to know, if you wanted to, where your coffee was roasted, where it's from, what altitude it was grown at, what process, what farm it's from, what altitude it was grown at. Are there any potential defects to, to the regions that, uh, that where that coffee is growing that you need to watch out for? Because that happens a lot, and it's not a bad thing. It doesn't mean we need to stop sourcing from those uh, from those places. It just means we need to treat that coffee a little differently. Yeah, basically, that's it. I, I would say, first of all, if you know the story behind your coffee, chances are you'll be able to do something really nice with it. And, uh, and then it's really just about how... Uh, trained and experienced the people in that chain that I just described from farming to roasting uh, to brewing and if you're the home brewer then you Do you have a, a favorite bean type of coffee or where it's grown if I had to put you on the spot and say what type what cup of coffee if you, your, your last cup of coffee what would that be? You know, I get slaughtered for this in my industry a lot because I end up always saying the thing that a lot of people would regard quote-unquote basic, but I am a sucker for a good Brazilian coffee. At this point, I think a lot of people, a lot of my peers would uh, would kind of gasp and shudder, but some of the Brazilian coffees, uh, especially specialty-grade coffees that I've had that have been roasted by real masters have been uh, some of the greatest highlights of my coffee life, for sure. So if there's one region that I had to highlight as a soft spot, it would be that. On a more personal level... One region that I feel very strongly about, both in terms of kind of uh, the history behind it, but also um, my story with it, would be Rwanda. One of the first competitions that I ever won as a barista was using a Rwandan coffee. Uh, I think Rwanda is also a phenomenal um, example of the power of coffee. Here you have a, a war-torn torn nation that was you know, completely devastated by a war and genocide and has had to completely rebuild its economy from scratch, and that too uh, on the back of coffee, and particularly on the back of specialty coffee, which I believe at the moment more than half of uh, Rwanda's exports comprise of. It's a region that's blessed with tremendous amounts of flavor. It's actually a region known for a particular defect that we call the potato defect, uh, which is a type of rust that can occur in, in the cherry um, which imparts a very bitter uh, flavor akin to biting into a raw potato peel. So speaking of the, the next cup of coffee and perhaps uh, to avoid any potato-flavored coffee or potato potato bean coffee, um, where can people find more information about coffee or to find out more, to, to visit you, to hear more about all these stories related to coffee? Um, I would definitely follow us on our, our social media because that's uh, a platform that we often use to tell uh, the story of what we do. Coffee's change every five to six days almost at coffee so it's very hard to kind of keep updated on uh, on a platform like a website uh, for stuff like that but we definitely use our social media platform to keep up to date my favorite way of keeping up to date is uh, coming at our door even now during the lockdown one of our favorite activities is to be able to speak to our customers directly tell them what the story is make them taste what we're doing uh, make them smell what we're doing um, I, I think that's really part of the experience so i would always encourage if you can please come over. Uh, our baristas love uh, to talk about coffee. 
So the, the, where's the, the address? We'll put all the links to the social media and the website uh, uh, in the show notes as well so people can find it there. But uh, where can they stop by? So you can find Kafi on Princess Strat, uh, number 25. For those who are familiar with the Palace Gardens, it's the street between the Palace Gardens and the old church. Um, and we're kind of smack in the middle of it. Yeah, hard to miss. Normally, there's a big, bright, beautiful yellow bench that's become quite iconic with what we do. Uh, which we've had to remove for obvious reasons. But you'll spot us, yeah. Stop by, Kathy. Thank you so much, Zishan, for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, I think once more, Tom, it was uh, fascinating to hear about the complexity of the process of creating coffee. And I know we touched on that last week, but I think um, Zishan just really explained it in great depth. And it is indeed, seems to be an art, almost an art form, and also dependent on lots of different different people and different processes. But I think what interested me most was his mention of Rwanda, because next week we speak with um, a man who's also interested in coffee, but he is interested in helping professional cyclists from East Africa, including Rwanda. And, and of course, they also source their coffee uh, from Rwanda. This is, I'm talking about Lola Bikes and Coffee. So I was just fascinated to hear that um, Zishan also had some experiences from that part of the world, and he was very positive about it as well. I think there's a certain power in coffee and that's also the way he describes it. And I think coffee is so universal and there are so many people. And even when I spoke to Shisha and we spoke about like, what memories do we have in our, our cup of coffee? So what, what, like what memories do we have of our first cup of coffee? I mean, he shared the one where he said like, okay, it was, I was five from a vending machine, but what was your first experience with coffee? Honestly, I can't remember, Tom, I have to be honest. I mean, I'm not, I, you know, I like coffee, but I, perhaps I don't sh- quite share Zijan's, you know, total passion. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that I hope to be a barista one day, but I do enjoy a good cup of coffee every morning, absolutely, without doubt. And do you have a favorite type of coffee, a favorite not cup of really, coffee? Not really, no, but I think, um, no, I don't, I don't think I know enough about it. I still need to sort of dig into all of that. I'm sort of familiar with some of the, the, the bean types, but I, I wouldn't want to. I know more about wine than coffee. Perhaps this way. month has just been too short, too little <laughs> coffee to explore. And Perhaps, uh, Tom. Perhaps. There's still much more to explore, I'm sure. I'm Tom. And I'm Zoe. And thank you for stalking with us this evening. Next week on Stalk Talks. We'll focus on... Uh, a man who is passionate about professional cycling. And I just mentioned him, but he is so passionate that he is involved in the planning of a four-day cycle race that will run through the Masai Mara National Park in Kenya. So definitely tune in uh, to hear more about that next week. Yeah, and simultaneously, as we've now closed off the theme of coffee and tea, I'll start looking into the celebratory foods and drinks that come with Christmas and in December. Well, I love this time of year, Tom, and uh, food, mulled wine, Christmas stockings. So I really, really look forward to, to hearing more about that. Yeah, I, I, I do as well. And if you as a listener want to stay tuned about uh, any of these topics coming up, then be sure to, to follow us uh, on wherever you get your podcasts. And simultaneously, if you want to know more about the topic we discussed yesterday in last night's broadcast, you can find that on the, the Facebook Live. Please tune in again next week for more fun, frolics and some new and timeless stories right here in the city of peace and justice.